House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Mark Shaw is with us in, in, in uh, the room today, so to speak, and uh, we're going to be talking about um, a very important book. And, um, uh, you know, I, I actually downloaded the audio version quite a while ago and been meaning to have you on the show, but you know how it goes. Mm -hmm. So, The Poison mm -hmm. Patriarch, and it's uh, how the betrayals of Joseph P. Kennedy caused the assassination of JFK. Now, before we get into that, thank you for being here. Sure, thank you. And what made you go, because now you've got two other books that kind of follow this uh, mm -hmm. this sort of theme, and they're kind mm -hmm. of tied together. You've got one out now, uh, and you've got one coming out, I guess, later. Mm -hmm. um, what made you go in this direction in, in your writing? Well, you know, uh, I never thought I'd get involved in the JFK assassination. You know, I was very young in college when it happened, and I never paid, you know, it was such a tragedy, uh, JFK's death and all of that, but it wasn't anything that I ever thought uh, I would write about. I fell into it by accident, frankly. Uh, I had practiced, I was a former criminal defense lawyer, and I'd done some uh, analyzing some high-profile cases on the networks and things like that, and I had begun... Uh, my writing career in the 90s when my first book was about Mike Tyson's trial uh, and I covered that trial for USA Today and, and the networks and everything and so I wrote a book called Down for the Count and that kind of launched my writing career. So I just kept writing and writing and writing uh, but in the 1980s I actually practiced some law here in San Francisco with uh, Melvin Belli and uh, for those people who don't know who he was, he was a, a bombastic, flamboyant lawyer uh, of the 20th century, he probably uh, represented some of the most famous people, the Rolling Stones, Tammy Faye Baker, uh, Muhammad Ali. I mean, he was in the <laughs> middle of the uh, uh, he was in the middle of the action all that's the time. Quite, that's quite a mix, Tammy Faye and yes, the Rolling Stones. There you go. <laughs> Wonder but, if they passed uh, I, each other. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so um, I got to know Mr. Bell. I had an office in his building downtown San Francisco, and we became pretty good friends. And uh, so when he died in 1996, uh, I noticed that he had written two autobiographies. You'll get a kick out of this. The uh, the information in his the books about himself conflicted the information, but that was Belli. He was he was a bigger than life character and best known as the King of Torts. He was a great personal injury lawyer. He sued everybody and everything and got big damage amounts and stuff like that. So that's what he was known for. And um, we even knew uh, each other well enough that he took me to the Major League Baseball All-Star Game here in San Francisco in his gold Rolls Royce. And so when he died in 1996, I thought, you know, at some point I want to bi write a biography. So I did uh, in the mid-2000s, and I started researching Mr. Belli's life, and I talked to a lot of his uh, former uh, clients and also those who uh, were colleagues of his and uh, got to know a lot about Mr. Belli, and that became a book called uh, Melvin Belli, King of the Courtroom, which was published in 2007. And uh, while I was working on that book, uh, I learned a great deal about Belli because one of his most famous clients that people didn't know about was Jack Ruby, who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. They also didn't know that Belli was very much affiliated with the underworld. Uh, his main client at the time, just before the 
uh, Ruby case and the assassinations was uh, Mickey Cohen. And Mickey Cohen, you may remember, was a, a notorious Los Angeles gangster. Um, I, I found his FBI file and they you know, chronicled all of the deaths that he was responsible for. He was in the ilk of, of um, Carlos Marcello and Tropicante and Costello and Giancana and all that guys wrapped up in all of that network. And so Belli uh, represented him and they actually became very close friends. And so I'm working on Belli's research and I interview um, a, uh, a doctor friend of his in San Diego. And uh, the doctor friend told me uh, that Belli knew a woman named Dorothy Kilgallen, who was a famous uh, New York Journal-American uh, investigative reporter and author or, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, journalist who had a, a column that was spread to 200 newspapers across the country and all that kind of thing. And so um, uh, we started talking about Belli and, and Kilgallen, and I, he said, you know, I said, I know her from what's my line. And he said, well, Mark, you don't know anything about her career and everything. And so I, I kind of heard him out and listened to him, but he said at the end of the conversation, you know, it's interesting, when Dorothy Kilgallen died, Belli said, they've killed Dorothy, now they'll go after Jack Ruby. They've killed Dorothy, now they'll go after Jack Ruby. Well... Um, you know, that really made me stop and think about Belli and his representation of Jack Ruby. And to close uh, the, the information about your, your question, that made me decide to look back in time and see how uh, this all might have felt, uh, fit in with uh, the assassination of JFK and the part that Joseph P. Kennedy may have played uh, in the in the death of, of his son, uh, uh, John. And so that led me to research for the new book, which ended up being called, as you said, The Poison Patriarch, and that led me back to the 1960 election where I began my research. So how did you, um, like most people that talk about the conspiracy and most people that talk about JFK, and we've had a lot of people on, um, mm -hmm. they're always sort of blaming one particular character and they have one theme like it's LBJ or it's you know mm -hmm. uh, the CIA it's the Cubans it's the it's the Russians there's always uh, they, they have one theme and that's it so how did you tie uh, mm -hmm. Joe Kennedy into this mm -hmm. well the uh, the affiliation of Belli with the mafia and then his representation of Jack Ruby as a as a former criminal defense lawyer, the defense of Ruby never made sense to me at all. Um, you know, this uh, psychomotor epilepsy insanity defense that he came up with just seemed to make little sense to, to, to anyone except Belli. And so, um, and, and we'll, we'll get to uh, how this all fits in with Dorothy Kilgallen, but what I did was I thought, you know, I'm going to go back to the 1960 election and see what happened because this is just three years before JFK died. And I want to see if I can um, focus in using primary sources. I, I really uh, focus on primary sources, not speculation in my books. And so I said, let's go back to the 1960 election and, and, and take a look at, at what happened. Well, uh, what I found was that Joe Kennedy wanted to be president of the United States. Uh, there's no question about that from, from everything you read. Uh, you know, his power, his money, uh, everything he had, he wanted to be president. Well, uh, uh, stepping up the ladder there was the first thing. He was, he was uh, appointed ambassador to, to uh, Great Britain, to England. 
and he spent time over there. And unfortunately, before World War II, he, uh, you know, I think it was pretty well known, he uh, kind of cuddled up to, to Adolf Hitler and, uh, you know, appeased Hitler and, and didn't believe there was that much of a threat. A lot of that had to do, again, with money and power. But Joe got in trouble for that, and uh, his reputation suffered a great deal. So he came back to the United States, and he said, well, okay, if I can't be president of the United States because of my reputation being damaged, one of my sons will be. And the first one, of course, was going to be his, his son, uh, Joe. And uh, unfortunately, Joe died in the war. So now who's next up? Well, that's JFK. So right away, uh, you know, uh, as I learned, uh, Joe put all of his money and power into making Joe, uh, John, uh, JFK president of the United States. First thing was to become senator and so on and so forth. Joe used all of his political power. And uh, as 1960 came along, that was um, the, uh, what was, you know, what was his, you know, his, his goal. He was like the, the little league manager who does, uh, who, who coaches his son, and he's going to live through his son because he can't play little league anymore. Well, Joe couldn't become president, so now he's going to live that through one of his sons. And um, so, uh, in the 1960 election, you may remember, and I think this has been pretty well chronicled, that they got in trouble with the election. They were they were up against uh, President uh, against uh, Nixon. It looked like uh, everything went well after that uh, terrible uh, debate that Nixon went through, but they soon realized that unless they won Illinois and West Virginia, they would lose the election with the electoral votes. So Joe, and, and one of the things that I try to do in that book is to point out that all this about him being in boot, bootlegging and everything else in his past, that was really a lot of speculation. But Joe did have connections with the mafia, and one of those connections came through the Kennedy friend, Frank Sinatra, who knew gangsters like Sam Giancana, Marcello, Traficante, all of those guys. And so he went to Frank Sinatra and said, look, we need some help in Illinois. Well, as you may remember, Illinois was as corrupt as, as any uh, state has ever been in the world, and that was because of Mayor Daley in, in, in Chicago. And Giancana was a part of that with uh, Daley, and so... Joe Kennedy, and, and I show this very clearly in the book, went to Sinatra and said, look, uh, could, can you do something for us so that we can win um, Illinois? And also we're going to need some help in, in, with the unions in West Virginia. So Sinatra did his job, and that is very well chronicled. And so uh, the, the election takes place, and what happens? Well, Giancana does his job. Uh, Daly does his job. They win Illinois, and they win West Virginia and they win the election. Well, there was a deal that was made, a deal with the devil, and uh, I have primary witnesses who were right there when Joe Kennedy had made the deal that if, in fact, the underworld uh, you know, characters such as Giancana and Marcel and those guys helped them win those two states, uh, Joe promised that when they got in the White House, they would leave those guys alone. They would not pursue uh, those, those underworld characters well, uh, okay, now we have a situation where uh, JFK is president. And those underworld guys who, you know, take people at their word and, and uh, all of that uh, are absolutely amazed and shocked when uh, Joe Kennedy forces JFK to appoint Bobby Kennedy attorney general. And one of the most important parts of the book is that I have an eyewitness to that happening. John Sigenthaler was a presidential aide to Bobby. 
and he became, became then one of the founders of USA Today and a celebrated journalist. And I tracked down John, who I had known from a debate that I gave uh, one time at his First Amendment Center in Nashville, and had a long conversation with him, and he told me, as is explained in the book, that he was there the night when Bobby Kennedy said, I don't want to be Attorney General, and JFK said, I don't want to appoint him Attorney General, and Joe Kennedy said, that is going to happen, and that's all there is to it. And the next day, Bobby Kennedy was appointed Attorney General. Well, what happened then? Predictably, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who wanted to make a name for himself, uh, and had already uh, gone after those mobsters at the McClellan, McClellan Committee and all of that, uh, the first thing, one of the first things he did just, I think, three months into the administration was deport Carlos Marcello, the New Orleans Don, who was Giancana's best buddy, uh, to Central America, uh, deported him down there. Uh, he, was, he was thrown into the jungle. It was just a terrible uh, situation, and he finally then returned to the United States. But that signaled to those underworld characters that Joe Kennedy was double-crossing them. And so... Uh, Marcello got back in the country, and then uh, uh, Joe, uh, through Bobby, went after James Hoffa, they went after Traficante, they went after Marcello, they went after Giancana, all of those guys. And one thing I'm telling you you can't do is, uh, is double-cross those kinds of people. And I will tell you just a quick story as to how I personally saw what can happen. When I was a correspondent for Good Morning America... Uh, and covered trials for them and did human interest stories, all at once they told me that there was an opportunity to interview Angelo Bruno, uh, uh, who was a, a, a Philadelphia Don, interview his lawyer. And the show wanted me to do that, so I traveled over to Philadelphia, and I sat down with this lawyer, I can't remember his name now, and he gave me quite a good interview about, Mar about uh, Angelo Bruno's uh, being involved in the Atlantic City casinos. And, uh, and it was an amazing interview, and so I took it back to New York. We edited it, and, and it was on the air the next morning. Well, it just exploded through the airwaves. We didn't have the Internet then, but it was all over the newspapers and everything else as to what this lawyer had told me. And it's a true story. I called the producer of the show said, Mark, uh, can you interview him again? And I said, well, I'll try. And I called that, sh uh, that office of this lawyer the next morning, and this woman came on the phone, a secretary, I assume, and said, I said, hey, I'd like to talk to X and see if he might talk to me again. And, and I could tell that her voice was so soft. And she said, uh, uh, Mr. Shaw, uh, I'm sorry, and I could tell she was crying, and she said, I guess you don't know it. I just got a chill as I'm saying this. Um, you don't know it, but uh, Mr. X, uh, was in his car this morning, and his car was blown up. Mm -hmm. So they killed him for talking to me. Well, you can imagine that if you just, you know, expand it a thousand times. Here is, um, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy going after these guys after there was the promise by Joe that it wouldn't happen. And so we get then, uh, using common sense uh, uh, motive, as we get to the end of, of 1963, Carlos Marcello is about to be deported again. And uh, he uh, is also facing a racketeering trial in New Orleans. His back is against the wall. What is he going to do to get himself out of this uh, situation? And so, um, again, common sense and, and using motive, as I, as I always did in my criminal defense trials, 
And I will tell you that the, all this will, is, is confirmed in my books about Dorothy Kilgallen and what she discovered with her compelling investigation that Marcello decided, look, I need to stop this. It can't go any further. Well, if he killed Bobby Kennedy, whom he hated, but, uh, JFK and the government would have come after everybody, including him. But if you kill JFK, then Bobby Kennedy is powerless. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, they never went after those guys again until many years later, and Bobby wasn't involved. He finally resigned as attorney general. And, um, you know, it's interesting because that theory has been confirmed by none other than RFK Jr., he did it in an interview with Charlie Rose a few years ago where he basically said, yes, his father knew it was the mafia and pointed toward the guy from New Orleans. And then RFK Jr. just spoke here in San Francisco probably about a month ago and told the Commonwealth Club, which is a, a huge venue for, for speakers, in, that in his new book he emphasized again that his father, RFK, knew that it was the mafia who assassinated JFK. So... Taking that all around, what I basically say is that the decision that Joe Kennedy made to double-cross the mafia, appoint Bobby Kennedy attorney general, and then the, the domino effect took place all the way until JFK died. And so, uh, in my opinion, and based on the evidence that I produced, Joe Kennedy um, shot JFK, certainly not literally, uh, but figuratively, he uh, he did, uh, because his actions um, caused the demise of JFK. And there's one other thing, that um, when Ted Kennedy told um, Joe Kennedy that uh, JFK had been assassinated, you may remember that uh, they had the New York Times there, and Joe swept, according to, to Ted Kennedy, swept that uh, New York Times off of the, um, uh, off of the, off of the, off of the bed, and uh, basically just sat there, and I believe that's where he, you know, knew that uh, his actions had caused the president, uh, the death of the president. Mark, if I, if I may just take us back a little bit, because sure. for those people who are, who are listening to this absolutely fascinating and uh, informative interview, for those people who, who may not be as familiar about processes and how things work, um, at this particular time and, and, and place. Mm -hmm. Right at the beginning, when, when Joseph would have needed to pave the way for one of his sons to become president, how much would that have taken? And surely he would have had very strong um, relationships with people already to make that happen. Well, uh, Joe's, uh, you know, what do they say? The apple doesn't fall you know, far from the tree. Joe's father was a uh, political, uh, you know, uh, maneuverer guy in, in, in Boston. Uh, if, you, if you look that up, you'll see that he was uh, used his money and power and sometimes not completely legally to get uh, politicians elected who could assist with uh, Joe Kennedy's father's uh, political ambitions and his um, greed uh, and, and, and him wanting to get to the top of the... Uh, the latter there. So Joe learned that from his father. And Joe was a very vindictive guy. He was, a, he was the kind of person who, um, you know, he was such an egotist. And, you know, again, he had all the affairs that uh, he taught his sons about that, how to do that, obviously, <laughs> because uh, JFK and Bobby and all of them were philanders as well. But um, he, he knew how to fix cases. He knew how to fix politicians. He knew how to fix elections. 
And so he, uh, you, you may find this quite interesting. Joe Kennedy actually believed that uh, JFK could be president for eight years, then Bobby would be president for eight years, and Ted would be president for eight years. Now, I know that sounds outlandish, but there is sufficient evidence to show that that's what he wanted to do. He believed that could happen because he had those political connections, and he could uh, mastermind the, uh, the process by which, you know, he moved JFK up uh, through, the, you know, through the ladder uh, into to prominence. Um, for instance, the first uh, way you do that, Joe knew, was to make his sons a star. And, and they needed to be a star in the media. So what did he do? He got JFK appointed to that McClellan committee, which investigated the rackets, and he got Bobby Kennedy to be there as a, as a, as a lawyer as well. And so, you know, the media attention to that, being on television, and of course his sons were, you know, drop-dead handsome, that certainly didn't hurt, and so he made them stars. And uh, then, you know, that was just the first leap into um, Joe, uh, to John Kennedy become a senator and then uh, running for president. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how um, your suggestion about uh, Joe having the connections and doing all this. So for the listeners that don't know and the younger ones, what exactly mm -hmm. did Joe do? Like, where did he get his money and how did he get these connections uh, to be able to do such a thing? Well, he's a fascinating man. I, I have a lot of, uh, I'm not an admirer of his, but I am an admirer of his being so clever. Reminds me of J. Edgar Hoover just a little bit in some ways. They were both uh, men who knew what they wanted and went after it. And Joe was that way. Uh, did he make uh, money in the, in the bootlegging area? You know, maybe. Did he make money with investments in real estate? Uh, no question about it. Did he make money with his um, uh, with his investments? Uh, absolutely. Joe was smart enough to get in on the ground floor, even in Hollywood. Joe uh, ended up uh, buying a studio and and running that studio and and all of that. He was a very very savvy businessman, and he was one who um, avoided uh, the stock market collapse. Now, there were uh, rumors at that time, and I call them rumors because I don't think there's any substantiation, that Joe was warned about what was going to happen there, and so he watched his stocks and he watched his investments and all of that. But he was a, not only a very powerful man, but he was a smart man, and he knew what he wanted. And the moment, I would say, that he, that he realized that his rep reputation had been tarnished due to the whole... Um, Hitler uh, situation, uh, he made up his mind, if I can't be president, then one of my sons is going to be president. And he was in a, he was in a position, especially with the power, but more also with his money to spread around, where he could make that happen. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. We, we had um, RFK Jr. on, and uh, he, did talk oh. about, he did talk about conspiracy. He, di he wasn't as direct, but he did say he believed it was a conspiracy and kind of left it at that. Um, mm -hmm. Really interesting. Uh, and, and now in your Reporter That Knew Too Much book, you bring yeah. in uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. Now, how do you tie her to this, this whole situation? Uh, one, one quick thing about RFK Jr., by the way, if you yeah. read his new 
book, um, something like The Values I Learned from My Family. Yeah. <laughs> I, I only laugh a little bit because, uh, you know, yeah. uh, they the, leave out the womanizing. Yeah. He doesn't really get into much of Joe's uh, background and all of that. But the, the book is a good one, and, and uh, I enjoyed it, but I did get a kick out of that subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is another accident uh, there. I was not going to write about Dorothy Kilgallen. Uh, but that quote, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a curious guy like you are and like Julie is, uh, and you know, when, when something, you, you hear something and you just can't get it out of your mind. I was done when I wrote The, the uh, Poison Patriarch, but I couldn't get that quote out of my mind. So I started looking in uh, to the life and times of Dorothy Kilgallen, and oh my gosh, what I found. You know, um, and, and I will just tell you, that the reason this book became a bestseller and we, we have had the rights uh, the media rights, TV and, and film option by uh, two very prominent Hollywood producers is because the book has really touched in emotions with those who have read it. And I, I'm so amazed at that because I never intended to write it. But I started finding out about this remarkable woman. And um, yes, the doctor in, in San Diego was right. She was a media icon like no one before, the Journal American column voice of broadway syndicated to 200 newspapers uh through the hearst syndicate a day she had uh what's my line uh, a, a panelist on there the main panelist the star panelist watched by 20 million people every sunday night she had a radio show with her husband listened to a million people in new york city she did all of these different things but then she was also i found out this investigative reporter who covered many of the most famous trials of the 20th century, the Lindbergh kidnapping case, um, the uh, Dr. Sam Shepard case, which, as you know, became uh, the film The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Uh, she, she covered the Lenny Bruce trial, First Amendment trial. She covered all of these different trials. And so I was amazed to learn about um, that she was a true media icon and, and uh, you know, people who've read the book uh, learn just as I did um, what what kind of a, a, a woman of integrity Dorothy was. She was respected so much because she was a woman of integrity. She used primary sources. Um, no fake news with Dorothy. Uh, she had this reputation as somebody who could be trusted, and that came in handy. Uh, on the DorothyKilgallenStory.org website, there are all the photos of Dorothy, her columns, her articles, and everything, but one that people would really enjoy looking at is at the Dr. Sam Shepard case. It's my favorite one. She's standing in the middle of a courtroom, and all of the other reporters are um, crowded around her. Uh, she is the star. She is the, uh, the media icon they all look up to, and, and that's an amazing photograph. So I started looking into Dorothy and wanted to learn more about her, and I learned that she had covered the, JF, uh, covered the Jack Ruby trial. And uh, I started to look into more of that, and uh, I was interested in it because I will tell you, and I have an admission to make, like all of the others who have written about the JFK assassination, including me, we have something in common. We weren't there. But Dorothy Kilgallen was there, I found out. She was at the Jack Ruby trial. She's the only reporter out of 400 there to have interviewed him at the trial, and she did it twice. And then, to show the power that she had, uh, she was able to get a copy of the Jack Ruby testimony before the Warren Commission, before it was to be released. And that was a huge exclusive, like the Nixon tapes or, 
or um, you know the Pentagon Papers at the time. This was a huge exclusive, and they printed the uh, the Ruby uh, testimony in the Journal American. So I began to learn more and more about the fact that she had what I believe was the most compelling investigation into the JFK assassination, and for 18 months she investigated that case, and she tried to find out what the truth was using her sources, using sources within the uh, Dallas Police Department, uh, talking to people who were actually there when the assassinations took place. And it was amazing to me to, uh, to learn the extent of her investigation. Well, um, I put all that together with what I'd learned about uh, Joe Kennedy and, the, and, and Jack Ruby and all of that and found that Dorothy had focused in on one thing, and that was Jack Ruby, not Oswald. She thought that was a dead end. There were too many question marks there, but Ruby she could understand. And through the interviews she had with uh, Ruby, she learned a lot about what had happened, and she started uh, looking into more of uh, how she could show the progression as to how JFK uh, was killed and by whom. So what's one of the first things she did? She visited New Orleans. And we don't know exactly what Jack Ruby told her, but she ended up visiting New Orleans, and there she um, looked into the life and times of uh, Carlos Marcello, how that connected with Jack Ruby, how that connected with Oswald, all of those connections. And while doing so, she made... Um, she had a file that had all of her uh, evidence in it, and that file was going to become the foundation for a book uh, call, uh, called Murder One for Random House that she was writing about the JFK assassination. So now we get to the end of 1963. The first part of 64 is when the Ruby trial is, and we're headed for the end of 1965. So um, I got to that particular point, and I was trying to figure out more about what happened to Kilgallen, and she was writing this book, and then I landed on a gold mine. And that was the fact as to how Dorothy Kilgallen uh, died. Right. In November uh, of 1965, uh, her body was found in a, uh, a bedroom in her townhouse, or lavish townhouse in Manhattan, in a bed she never slept in, wearing clothes she never wore to bed, wearing her eyelashes, uh, having her eyelashes, her... Uh, uh, her um, hairpiece and her makeup on, uh, a book that uh, was lying on her uh, lap was upside down, her reading classes were nowhere, and uh, there was a, an empty bottle of Secanol uh, 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 tablets uh, next to her bed. Well, uh, they, uh, there was some confusion as to how uh, her body was found, and more of that is in the new book, Denial, in the, uh, Denial of Justice, which will be coming out in November. But uh, the, uh, the police did not arrive for a, a number of hours, and uh, then uh, the medical examiner quickly decided that Kilgallen must have died of an overdose of secondal pills. Uh, an autopsy was performed, despite uh, the fact that the uh, medical examiner thought the death was accidental, and that's another uh, issue that I deal with in the new book in the fall. But uh, basically he said uh, she died of a combination of barbiturates and alcohol, and then he added, circumstances undetermined. Well, when I found that out, again, I'm a curious person like you are, and I began to investigate because there was no investigation. They just closed the door, bar uh, Dorothy was buried and forgotten, basically, uh, for 50 years. So one of the first things I did 
was I tried to find that autopsy report, and you probably know it's very difficult to get unless you're a member of the family. But I found uh, the fact that there was a copy at the National Archives. I got a copy of it. I read it, and the first thing I noticed was that in there it talked about secanol, but also there was a second barbiturate, tulanol, which is a step up in the danger ladder from, um, from uh, secanol. Well, that made me really start to look into her death, and I started to look into the forensics, and I started to be able to try to find people who knew more about this case. And with every book that you write or, or any interview you do, there's something that stirs your interest and keeps you moving along. And I was able to find a woman in Los Angeles who was um, passionate, obsessed with Dorothy's death. And she told me about interviews that had been done with uh, the two hairdressers who knew Kilgallen best, Joe Tonahill, who was the co-counsel with Belli of Jack Ruby, and one of the last people to see Kilgallen on What's My Line the night before Dorothy died. I was able to get a hold of this woman, and I said, Boy, I'm amazed, and I'd love to talk to these people. And she said, Mark, I have bad news. They're all dead. And mm -hmm. I said, Oh, no. She said, I have good news. I videotaped the interviews. And that was the key to all of this because it took me six months to earn this woman's trust. But then I got those videotapes, and I looked through them, and I watched them several times, and I learned more about the fact that there was no question in my mind that there was a homicide. And then that was confirmed when I found uh, yet another test of Kilgallen's uh, bodily fluids, which was done three, year, three uh, years later by two toxicologists in the ME's office, and found that in the... Uh, in their uh, analysis, there were actually three uh, barbiturates in Kilgallen's uh, blood system, uh, and that was uh, secanol, tulanol, and phenobarbital, uh, pointing to the fact that there was no question that she was murdered. So I took all that and I started to look at the, uh, at the suspects who could have uh, caused Kilgallen's demise, and the, the, the book, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, is a true crime murder mystery. There are five suspects in there. Uh, I, I laid them all out for people, and uh, it's interesting because all of the thousands of readers of the book each have a feeling as to who they think killed Dorothy Kilgallen. Yeah. I, I mean, that's really interesting. We had um, um, F. Lee Bailey, and we talked to him about um, the, the, the case, the uh, Sam Shepard, and mm -hmm. how, how she was the one that uh, had talked to the that's judge. Right. And, and she gave that's right. the judge the information that, he had, or not the judge, but um, Athley Bailey, that the mm -hmm. judge has already said that, you know, he's guilty, you know, that, you know, that mm -hmm. whole scenario. And um, so, of course, when we talked about that, I brought up Dorothy and mm -hmm. to find out his thoughts. Now, now mm -hmm. he said he was out drinking with her. Yeah, may have been. Uh, they, they both were drinkers, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not going to go down there. But, yeah, he uh, he uh, said he was out drinking with her the night before. Well, that's not true, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I must say, I'm proud to say that I actually practiced with Lee at one time, and, and we had a murder case together in the Midwest. Uh, we kept in touch uh, over the years. Uh, as you know, uh, his, his uh, star fell. And uh, he ended up, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, being disbarred. I even wrote a letter for him to the Massachusetts Supreme Court telling them that, telling them that uh, Bailey deserved uh, a second chance and all of that. Um, but as you know, uh, he, he never recovered from that. He now lives up in, uh, I think it's Vermont, in the, 
in a little apartment above a, a, a beauty a salon. Uh, he fell on hard times, and one of the problems that Lee had was was drinking. And uh, as you will, as people will read in the reporter who knew too much, uh, we have chronicled exactly what Dorothy did from the moment that she was ready to go to What's My Line, the final show. We have videotapes on that DorothyKilgallenStory.org from that woman uh, whose occupation she guessed. We have primary sources who talk about her going to P.J. Clark's uh, tavern there in New York City and then to the Regency Hotel uh, bar where she meets a mystery man and then her body is found later on. So with all due respect to, to Lee, that, that was impossible for them to, to uh, have, have been together that night. But he is right that Dr. Sam Shepard would still, well, he would still have been in prison then, or I don't remember if that's a death penalty case or not, but it could have lost his life if Dorothy had not come forward and told Lee that before the trial, you know, before every trial, this shows you how big a media icon she was, every judge would say, come into my quarters, I need an autograph. <laughs> and the judge in the Shepard case did that. But also, uh, as you'll read, or as, as Lee may have said, um, the the judge said, well, well, why are you here? Why are you interested in this case? And Dorothy gave him all the reasons, a celebrity uh, suspect and the, the murder and all the things that happened. And the judge said, well, I don't know why you're here. He's guilty as hell. Right. And that's what Dorothy ended up telling Lee Bailey. And that became the foundation for the Supreme Court appeal. And uh, Bailey, if he didn't, has said this many times, that he does not believe that, that uh, Shepard would have been uh, provided a new trial. As you know, uh, they finally used DNA to show that Shepard did not kill his, his wife. Uh, without Dorothy Kilgallen's reputation and her power and all of that, uh, being and, and her version of what the judge had said, uh, Shepard would have never gotten a new trial. It shows the power that she had. She was kind of like Oprah. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I think sisters. you could. Uh, yeah. yeah, you could. You could do that. You could say that. Uh, you know, and she raised three children. I mean, I'm sure Julie is impressed. So many young journalists and young women who've read this book, um, and and I think will be amazed because I was able to find so much new information about her life and times, uh, about her JFK assassination, with some shocking news that will be in the new book. Uh, so much more about the, the suspects who were involved in her death, all of that in the new book. But, uh, you know, she broke the glass ceiling before there was we even knew what that term meant. And so all of those uh, young women out there have really gotten inspiration because Dorothy was a college dropout. I mean, uh, she, she, she didn't have the, uh, the education at the time. And, and as you may know, in that day and age, and unfortunately we still have some of this today, uh, women were supposed to not only be in the back seat of the car, and keep their mouth shut. They were supposed to be in the car behind. But Dorothy overcame all of those obstacles, and 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 became such a uh, you know an inspiring figure for 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 women as a whole. Now, being how, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, well, I was just wondering. I mean, obviously, Mark, you've done so much research, and when you when you kind of moved on to then explore the life of Dorothy, how did you possibly even attempt to kind of filter out all of the existing information, yeah. make sense of it, and find you know, further truths. How did you begin that process as, yeah. a, as a writer? Well, let me tell you this, and, and some, of your, some of your listeners may think I'm, I'm uh, wacky, but I think Dorothy chose me to write this book for her. I don't know why, but I think she did. 
because uh, you know I, I've, I've always felt her presence as I've moved along through the investigation that somehow or another she was leading me uh, to different uh, sources and things like that. Um, and I have many examples of that uh, happening. Uh, but I will tell you that much of the new information about Dorothy has come from readers. I think at last count my assistant had told me we received something almost a thousand emails about the book and about Dorothy's life and times. And much of that was, uh, you know, talking about her and how much admiration they had. But much of it uh, also was leading me to witnesses, uh, people who either knew Dorothy, uh, all the way from the, uh, the, the waitress who served her on the last night of her life at P.J. Clark's in, uh, in New York City, to, um, uh, you know, friends of hers, to uh, people who knew people uh, that could tell me more about Dorothy's uh, lifestyle and habits. I was able to find the uh, daughter of, of Dorothy's butler in New York City through a tip from a reader, and I spent four hours with her in New York City, and all of that is in denial of justice. Um, and I can give you the best example of how that has happened uh, because it just happened yesterday. A gentleman in Topeka, Kansas, got in touch with me by email. Uh, in fact, I, I, I probably can just read you the email because I think you'll find it so fascinating, as I did. Um, I hope this note finds you well. I just started reading your work, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much. If you're interested, I'd like to interview for my podcast. In addition to the fact that your book is extremely compelling, I am also interested in this topic because I am a second cousin to Dorothy. I was born in 1973, so I have no particular information for your research, but I do have a photo of Dorothy's grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, Andrew Kilgallen and Marie Highland. And I am looking at that photograph right now because he sent it to me. Wow. Wow. It's, there's magic here with this, with this story. I, I, again, I just got to chill. I, I don't understand it exactly. Every time I think I'm... My research is done, and the manuscript is with the publisher. I'll get one more shot at it so I can add this photo. But that's what's happened here, and that's what's permitted me to, um, to fill in the blanks, as you say, because otherwise uh, that would not have been possible. And uh, uh, when things like this happened yesterday, I just shake my head, and I have to believe that Dorothy somehow or another um, is making these things happen uh, from the hereafter because I've been fighting to, uh, to get her the justice she deserves. I fought with the New York District Attorney's Office who agreed to look into the case and did for a while and, and then kind of gave up, and I keep after them to try to get more of an investigation of Dorothy's death. But I think she's leading me along, and, and uh, God bless her. Uh, I've been so proud to be able to tell her story to be her voice. Have you, have you tried to connect with her, Mark? Have you been What's to that? someone who have you tried to connect to her? Have you been to somebody who might be able to make that connection for you? Uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman in New York City that when I get out there the next time, I've, I've, I've been offered that situation, as you mentioned, and it's something that I would be interested in doing. And this particular gentleman is somebody who's given me enough uh, feeling about it and his credibility and everything that I may do that. Although I can tell you um, her, her photograph is uh, right over here next to my computer, and, and I feel her presence all the time. Uh, I feel like at times she taps me on the shoulder and, and tells me, hey, you know, go this way or that way. So, uh, but at some point uh, I may try to do that to see if that's possible. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
uh, pursue it. I, now, with, 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 with Dorothy and the whole scenario, wh- why did the police not follow through? And wh- I mean, this is kind of a generic question. It gets asked a lot in cases. Um, yeah. But was there a particular reason you found that they mm-hmm. didn't kind of investigate more than they did? Well, I'll tell you, you two are, are so perceptive and, and such good questions, and I thank you for that. It, it really, you've hit all the important points. Here, here's what happened, and I have uh, found witnesses who won't talk to me. Um, the, uh, you know, there are people who know information about Dorothy, and I've contacted them, and they tell me they won't talk to me because even though it's 50 years later, they're still scared. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds like a, uh, you know, a nice excuse, but in many ways, I believe it's true. The two hairdressers, for instance, who were interviewed uh, by the woman in Los Angeles never spoke to anyone until the late 1990s because they were both scared to do so. Here's what happened in 1965, and I believe it happened with Dorothy's friends, her family, her colleagues at What's My Line, her journalistic colleagues, and the authorities. They knew because Dorothy, unfortunately, was a blabbermouth and she was telling everybody that she was going to uh, solve the JFK assassination. In fact, her hairdresser, you can see his interview on the DorothyKilgallenStory.org, said uh, she told him, "I'm I'm afraid for my life and my family, but I'm going to solve this case. She told the other hairdresser, if the wrong people knew what I know about the JFK assassination, it would cost me my life. She bought a gun. She changed her will. She was, she was, knew she was in danger. And so did everybody else know she was in danger. And so what happened? Well, when she died, the, it was an obvious conclusion. It took me a long time to, to understand this. It, it, the obvious conclusion was her family, her friends, her colleagues, her journalistic friends, all of those people knew that if the same people who killed JFK killed Dorothy, and that's what they believe, and we have some testimony, some evidence to that. If the same people, the powerful people who killed JFK, killed Dorothy, we're not about to come forward and talk about what happened to her. And I think that happened with the authorities as well. They knew in their own mind that there was something wrong with that staged death scene. It doesn't take a, a, you know, a brain surgeon to figure that out. But despite the fact that, that the death scene was so obviously staged, they didn't move forward with, with an investigation, and I believe they all just wanted to wrap it up and, and decide that she died accidentally. That was the easiest way out, and that way nobody was in danger at all. Mm. Mm, just amazing. Well, yeah. Mark, let's give out your information here. So how do people get a hold of you, and if they have information, send it to you? Oh, thank you. Uh, the easiest place is MarkShawBooks.com. That's where all my books are uh, are uh, listed and all of that. And then, of course, they can find me through the ReporterWhoKnewToMuch.com. They can find me through the PoisonPatriarch.com, or uh, they can find me through the DorothyKilgallenStory.org. There are uh, links there to be able to send me information, just like this uh, Mr. Pryor did. Um, and somehow or another, uh, and, and I answer every email. I get back to everyone because I'm always concerned that if I don't, I'll miss something that's important about this case. So that's the easiest way uh, to do so. And uh, as I say, uh, I welcome uh, people getting in touch with me. Whether their information is worthy or not, it doesn't matter. 
uh, I, I want to listen to all of them. Oh, yeah, it all adds. You get something from everyone. Um, exactly. So now the books, of course, will be up on our website, so our listeners can just click on and uh, purchase the book or go to your site right from our website if they don't remember. Uh, and when when's the uh, next book coming out? You said November? It'll be November 20th, Denial of Justice. I think I sent you the, uh, the new cover for the book, and it's up on Amazon and all that for pre-order. But November 20th, and, and the reason uh, is because that will be uh, just a few days shy of the 55th anniversary of JFK's death. And uh, I can't go into it uh, because uh, it's, it's, uh, it, we're saving it for the book and because it's so important. But I will tell you, uh, while the, uh, the leader of our country uh, you know, will not, uh, again, release all of the JFK assassination file documents, uh, we will be releasing in the book uh, documents that have never been seen before that will shock people uh, about the uh, a JFK assassination and provide them with new material that they can evaluate uh, as to exactly what happened back in 1963. Wow, that's exciting. We'll look forward to that. Um, again, our guest, Mark Shaw, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Mark. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.